Hey, I'm Derek Transgard. This is the Alter Guild Podcast. I'm joined here today with Matt and Miriam and Meta. How are you guys doing? Good. Um, okay, quick question. How good are you guys at social media? So poor. I gave it up for Lent and haven't ever gone back. Good for you. That's like, wait, wait, wait. When you say give it up, like, what, what's the I mean, I deleted the Facebook app on my phone and, uh, I like the time that I spent on social media through those six weeks of Lent and then past Easter until now decreased uh, like tenfold. Um, so I occasionally go on 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 the computer box thing, but um, <laughs> that's pretty rare. But you don't do it out of boredom like you used to. Yeah, there's no boredom factor. It's it's I need to go on to do something or to check something. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I'm I'm super jealous of is is people who are good at social media. Like I want to be that person, you know. And I have friends that are like that, and I just look at them, and it's like this superhuman talent that I just don't have. So I was just I pulled up my Twitter here. Um, I love Twitter because I love reading other people's tweets, but like mine is terrible. So I actually just went on here and I was just looking at some of the things I've tweeted. Basically, I've just been retweeting Michael Scott quotes for like the last year. <laughs> so I'd like to share this one with you. Is there a God? If not, what are all those churches for? And who is Jesus' dad? <laughs> I, I, I retweeted that in January of last year, and then there's one more here. Uh, let's see, where did it go? Oh, here we go. To sell a can of Coke, you don't just show the can. You show a baby picking flowers on the moon. And people are like, whoa, I'm thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> so that's basically been my social media activity in the last year. Very productive, adding to the conversation. It's successful. It's wonderful. Um, Miriam, how are you with social media? I would say my primary social media activity is scrolling out of boredom. Um, I post occasionally. I don't think I've tweeted in like three years, so maybe I'll have to start doing that again. You know, we have this podcast we promote. We maybe should all get on that. <laughs> yes. I like... I don't so, know that this is a strength for any of us. <laughs> I got. I got to say, I, I have a love-hate relationship with the scrolling out of boredom, too, because sometimes I'll be working on something or I don't know having some idea in my mind and it really adds to my own conversation with myself um it also helps me I actually like the filter on the news that my friends give me I I appreciate their calling out of um privilege and unjust systems alongside their sort of posting of things that are happening in the world um but then there are other times when you're sort of in this scrolling out of boredom mood and you you don't realize that you really don't need more stimulus in your brain. And you think that lying on the couch and scrolling through Facebook is going to be relaxing, but it's really not. Um, mm. And you, I, I feel like my neurons are just like, stop, just give me a break. And as an extrovert, I end up down the rabbit hole. Like, ooh, I'm interacting with humans, but they're not human. And this happened eight hours ago, but I'm still reading sub-threads of this conversation that I don't need to be a part of. Right, and as a semi-introvert, I convince myself that I'm getting introvert time, but I'm exhausted afterward. Mm. Yep, that's me too. So if you need a break from your neurons firing, you can follow Derek Tronsgaard on Twitter to get a Michael Squat quote every six months. It'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty low-key. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So today on the podcast, I am sitting down with Jim Keat and Bethany Stoley. They're going to talk through some of these things that I'm terrible at, like technology and social media and all of the promises that it makes to us to make a better world. Here's my interview with Jim and Bethany.
A few months ago, Katie Couric posted this great outtake video from a 1994 taping of the Today Show on NBC. And in the clip, Bryant Gumbel and Katie Couric are sitting there on the couch. Bryant Gumbel is wearing this brown suit, white shirt, yellow decorative tie. Katie Couric is decked out in this bright pink blouse with a 90s style bob comb over haircut. And they're having an argument. And the argument is about how they're supposed to pronounce the at sign in NBC's new email address. It's pretty obvious that this is the first time that they've ever had to do this on the air and they're not sure how to say it. Back now at 56 Pass, I wasn't prepared to translate that as I was doing that little tease. Oh, that's that right. little mark with the A and then the ring around it. At. See, that's what I said. Mm-hmm. Um, Katie said she thought it was about. Yeah. Oh. But I'd never heard it. I'd never heard it said. I'd always seen the mark, but never heard it said. And then it sounded stupid when I said it. Violence at NBC. (coughs) Yeah, I heard around big fight in the lunchroom the other week. (laughs) There it is. Violence at NBC. G E com. I mean, well, Allison should know. What what is internet anyway? Internet is uh, that massive computer network, Mm -hmm. the one that's becoming really big now. What do you mean? That's big. How does one? What do you write to it like mail? No, a lot of people use it and communicate. I guess they can communicate with NBC writers and producers. Allison, can you explain what internet is? What is internet anyway? Little did Bryant Gumbel and Katie Couric realize on the set that morning, the question they were asking, what is internet anyway? This is the question that would affect an entire generation. It would affect how we live our lives, how we live in community together, how we create these spaces and have relationships with one another. And the truth is, since 1994, you can't really tell the story of what it is to be a human without the internet without social media. I I have a love-hate relationship with Facebook, and there's been many times when I have, you know, done the whole I'm done with the Facebook mentality, but about five years ago, I kind of rejoined it in the presence that I am now. I realized that so much of the congregation was on Facebook, and I was like, wait, if, if my congregation is going to a bar every weeknight, and I decide to go to a different one, and I'm like, why is no one here that I'm supposed to be pastoring and connecting with? Whose fault is it? It's not theirs, it's mine. So I decided to go to the bar where my people are. Jim Keats is a pastor at the historic Riverside Church in New York City. It's this beautiful Gothic-style cathedral on the Upper West Side. It's the tallest church in North America. And over the years, legendary figures have preached there. Martin Luther King delivered a sermon there exactly one year before his death where he renounced the war in Vietnam. Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu, Cesar Chavez, theologians like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Paul Tillich and Reinhold Niebuhr, they've all preached there. And today, Jim works there as the pastor of digital strategy and online engagement. He's trying to figure out how they and other church communities can harness the power of these new technologies to create authentic connections and real spaces for relationship. For a very saturated demographic in so many churches, at least the ones I've continued to serve, they're all on Facebook. So I need to be where they are. I need to show up in those spaces because just because it's digital doesn't mean it's not real. Uh, real's not the opposite of real. Digital's not the opposite of real. Digital's the opposite of, of physical, and they're both real encounters. So 
Uh, well, Facebook itself might be setting itself up for these specific profit means. It becomes an actual space where people can, can encounter one another. And as a pastor, that's my one of my callings is to help enter spaces to facilitate experiences where people can encounter one another and discover something deeper in the midst of that. I think the reason I'm a designer is because I'm a practical theologian and I'm a practical theologian because I'm a designer, which is a very practical theologian designery thing to say. Bethany Stoley went to school to be a youth minister, but she found a deeper calling in the world of design when she began working for Sparkhouse, a publishing wing of Augsburg Fortress that creates content and resources for youth and family ministry. Her passion for design thinking took her to the Austin Center for Design, where she soon saw the connections that can be made between the philosophy of design and theology. Today she lives in Seattle and she has her own design consulting firm called Stoli Creative. I don't say this lightly, I think I actually learned more about practical empathy when I was in design school than I did in a lot of my ministry training um, because we were drawing on design methodologies that um, force you to go out and suspend any sort of problem solving or any sort of judgment and really just listen and be present and soak in the stories that you're hearing. And then had a process for actually figuring out how do you transform that into something you can take action on. So I, I've ended up working with a lot of nonprofits and religious groups to help them um, embrace design thinking methods in order to better understand complex problems and figure out what to do about them. Promise has always been at the center of what it means to be the church. When God looks at creation and calls it good, it's a promise. When John the Baptist blazes a fire in the desert, pointing towards the coming of the kingdom of God, it is a promise. When the church gathers together as a community to worship, to baptize, to eat bread, drink wine, and be with each other in the joys and sorrows of life, it's a promise. But like Bethany says, when faced with complex problems right here and right now, sometimes the church's answer is not yet. And this can be a hard one to sit with. And so it makes sense that these pragmatic, scientifically driven cultures like Silicon Valley are going beyond just building websites and now dipping their toes into the business of making promises. Yeah, well, when I look at the greatest opportunities and challenges for our generation, right, so things like ending poverty or curing diseases or stopping climate change, um, those are things that no one group or country can do by themselves. Here's Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg in an interview he did with CNN in June of 2017. So we have to build a world where people can come together to take on these big, meaningful efforts. And, you know, that change just isn't going to happen top down. Right? There's no one in the world who can just snap their fingers and, and make that happen. Yeah. So what we need to do is empower uh, people all around the world to build communities, um, things like church groups and sports teams and uh, neighborhood groups and groups for people who love dogs and new moms and dads. You know, that's the, those are the, the groups that actually bring people together. And once people are, are coming together at these smaller um, smaller groups, um, that actually grows and, and it ends up with, with much bigger changes in the world. Did you catch that? Did you catch the promise? Facebook groups are the communities that will save the world. 
My church's Facebook group that we sometimes forget to update, that Facebook group that somebody put together to plan your high school reunion five years ago, that Facebook group of Golden Retriever owners that you're a part of, these are the communities, the promise says, that will save the world. And poverty, cure disease, the new world will not happen through a top-down hierarchy of governments and institutions and nation-states. It will happen on a screen. It will happen, Mark Zuckerberg and the shareholders hope, on Facebook. And this is a big promise. This is a vision dripping with utopian ideals soaked in optimism. And for those of us in the church, there is a way that we can lean into some of these promises. Places where the promises of technology and the promises of the gospel might be aligned. Both this technology will save the world and the church will save the world have a similar end. You know, there's some sort of a utopia that we're aiming towards in many of the ways we tell the narrative. I think the way the religious narrative is often constructed it's not as immediate or graspable. It becomes this someday, somewhere, I'll get beamed up to a, a, a spaceship called heaven. Whereas technology gives me a sense where I can see results and see the world around me getting better. Now, I tend to think theologically that when I say, you know, heaven, I'm, you know, I'm quoting the prophet Belinda Carlisle and saying it's a, heaven is a place on earth, uh, not some alien spaceship that I'll get beamed up to someplace. You know, I'm not trying to escape this world. I'm trying to reshape this world. So I think... The ways in which emerging technology platforms and technologies are doing that reshaping of the world, I think that's very much aligned with the work of the church and this theological underpinning of what it means to, you know, the restoration of all things is not something we wait for. It's something that we participate in now. So sometimes I think the, quote, secular humanists are doing it better because they are ending diseases and they are making advances that help people, you know, help children be born and continue to live and help mothers survive uh, childbirth and diseases end. And that should be the work of the church. It has been in many ways. You see many mission movements that had a very strong medical arm to them. But why have we stopped that? Or why do we see it as a competition? Um, I think the church needs to stop seeing everything as an us, them. If you're not doing it our way, if it doesn't have our quote unquote gospel message, it's not what we're about and begin seeing this good work and good news in the world as what the gospel has always been about. One of the most remarkable things about social media is the way in which it shines a light on the things that were once hidden. Corruption, broken systems and structures, inequality, the suffering of people in places and in situations that may not have been lifted up by the old guard and the old gatekeepers. This is the promise of social media, and this power to uplift that which is dead and broken in the hopes of creating new life and new realities is the promise of the gospel. And so whether the church likes it or not, social media does have the potential to do the work, to bring home the good news. But it's also here that I think Silicon Valley can find some wisdom and grounding from the church and from the promise of the cross. Because without a sense of suffering, without this sober dose of reality that comes from the real stories of doubt and longing and love and loss told by real people through real traditions stretching back thousands of years to the very beginning, 
promise isn't really promise anymore. Because promise in all of its fullness is rooted in the tension between hope and hopelessness. But a promise stripped of that, a promise that is only worried about technical solutions and technical challenges, it's only shallow optimism. Christianity ha has hope as a part of it, and so does this humanistic mentality of creating a better uh, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg utopia. There's, there's a definitely a uh, direction of hope there. They think that this can be the hope to change everything and save us all. Maybe what Christianity offers is a necessary dose of hopelessness to remind us that there are people who are never getting what is needed, and it, it, it reminds us of the voices of those who are pushed to the margins or silenced. Uh, and so we, we we can counter those. Everything's going to be better. And by saying, yeah, it, maybe it will, but let's not forget for the people that are getting run over along the way to get there. Miguel de la Torre has some wonderful commentaries on uh, the hopelessness of the gospel, and it continues to challenge me in every co context I find myself in. And when the church does take down the walls, when it's not an us versus them and new technologies are embraced, it's also important to remember well the lessons of the past as we enter into these new spaces. I do think for people who are ministry leaders, we need to look back, to look forward. Um, I worry a little bit about kind of a colonialist point of view or a colonial, colonialist approach to entering digital spaces. Um, people are already gathering there really naturally and natively. Like you go on black Twitter, um, there are conversations there that are really powerful for me to be able to observe and notice what's happening. Um, but those are not my spaces to inhabit. Um, and so thinking about what are the ways that we enter digital spaces um, to form connection and community. And then what are the appropriate boundaries where um, we don't belong or where we enter in a with a different posture than kind of typical approaches to evangelism or broadcast. I also think there are some challenges when you move from physical to digital spaces or technological spaces um, because you can't see the boundary of where your public is. Um, so Dana Boyd does some excellent work um, research with teenagers uh, especially, and has written a book called It's Complicated. Phenomenal book, highly recommend it. Um, and in it, she talks about networked publics. And so like, if you think about in the when we were growing up, those publics were like physical spaces. You go hang out at the mall or you go to the park or you're at school in the lunchroom. And so you have physical markers of those spaces and you know when other people are encroaching on your space. So, I mean, if you walk past, if you're an adult and you walk past a group of teenagers sitting at a table, they'll maybe lower their voices and they'll get a little bit quieter and then, or they'll shut up altogether. Um, and you know, you know, you can kind of infer something was happening there, but they're able to control how they're present in that space. What has shifted is there are fewer and fewer opportunities for people to gather physically together in, um, in public spaces. And so the challenge there is then they shift that interaction to digital spaces because it's available. Um, a friend of mine, his, he and his wife are um, were both working parents. Their preteen daughter wanted to go to a friend's house, but they couldn't get her there. And so um, they ended up FaceTiming while they played dolls together in in you know from their own bedrooms. Um, it was their way to get together into a form of a public. Um, 
when they couldn't physically be in the same space. The hard thing is when that public is Twitter, Facebook, social media, digitally mediated, there are two things that you have to manage. One is you don't know the boundaries of that physical space. So Dana Boyd talks about context collapse, when all of a sudden, if you think about like you're having a professional conversation and then all of a sudden like a family member chimes in, um, it's context collapse because you weren't able to maintain the boundaries of what would have been an isolated public. Um, And then you also have to think about how do you manage that over time. The temporal piece is really difficult, but you have to be able to manage your past experience when it's readily accessible, whether or not you've changed over time. Um, So I think those are two pieces that I think a lot about um, both how do we portray ourselves, kind of the avatar piece in social media, but then also how are we managing life in a world of networked publics when you have to think about context collapse, where um, what are the boundaries of that public that you want to try to maintain or cannot, Uh, and then how do you manage something that you share over time? So back to the question from Bryant Gumbel, what is internet anyway? It's not Mark Zuckerberg. It's not Google. It's not Facebook or Twitter or Silicon Valley. Internet is a promise. Internet is the promise of connection, of network, of relationship. And the thing is, we can use it however we want. And so my hope is that we, the church, will embrace this thing and help guide the larger conversation to steer it in the right direction, to shape it into a tool that lifts up the oppressed, gives a voice to the voiceless, and reforms the broken and crooked powers and structures of the world. And in the interview, Jim and Bethany pointed out that this whole thing rests solely on us, the user, the people, this promise is the work of the people. I'm most interested in asking how are the users interacting with this technology? Because I think we, the users, have a pivotal role in building it as well. I mean, this kind of stems from my own philosophy to always reading a book with a pen in my hand, because I think I have just as much to say as the person who wrote the book. So I'm going to mark up the columns, and I'm going to cross things out and argue with the author as I go. Uh, And I think these social media technologies have to have that component as well. Uh, how do people use the platform? And that becomes, that needs to be a viable part of what the platform exists to be. And I think, I mean, Twitter's my favorite. And I think it's a good example of this to some extent. Twitter didn't invent, Twitter did not invent hashtags. The users of Twitter invented hashtags. They started using it to organize uh, conversations and using it to denote context and then Twitter adopted this practice by the users. And I think that to me is the hope going forward. It's not that the technology company is making a promise that they need to keep, it's that they are simply building a sandbox that I, I get to come and play in and discover what it might be. Now, yes, I'm obviously advocating for a very open system with that uh, because if you go too close, suddenly they are building the, the walls instead of inviting people in. But I want to see the future, especially, I mean, the parallel there is obvious with the church. Is the church the the one building the wall or locking the door to say, no, we know what it is? Or is the church the one saying, let's gather together and play and create something and figure out what it is along the way? Am I the, you know, I've mastered the divine, so I know all the answers about God? Or am I simply the one who gets to set the table and invite people to come together and we discover what God is in the midst of that? So I think the internet's the same to me. Let's let's build in and play and see what we can build. See what see what comes out as a result.
And I think that relates a bit to some of the mindset in design, because in the world of design, you do a lot of iteration. You create a thing, you put it in front of people, you get feedback, and then you iterate on it. And you should do that over and over and over again. Um, and I think sometimes we get really protective of ideas. Um, we have the perfect idea for some new ministry or something. And so um, we try to hold it really close until we've perfected it. And then we're shocked when it doesn't work out as we imagined it. Um, one of my mentors, John Colco, was talking about um, make and reflect, don't hatch an egg. And I just keep coming back to that phrase over and over again, because it makes me think about how is this a, a collective activity? How is it a liturgical thing? It's the work of the people, as opposed to um, ministry leaders kind of exerting their power or or assuming they have the best ideas and then like propagating that out. User-centered design. Liturgy as user-centered design. Liturgy as user-centered design. Yeah, I like that. Or user-centered design as liturgy. Ooh. I think you guys just came this up with a book stuff. idea. You should you should get on that. I would buy that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Bethany and I, anytime we're together, we come up with at least a dozen book ideas. It's It's a blessing and a curse. Alter Guild is hosted by Meta Herrick Carlson, Matthew Ian Fleming, Miriam Samuelson Roberts, and Derek Transgard, with edits by Matt and Derek. You can visit our website at alterguild.org, that's A L T E R guild.org, and find us on Twitter and Facebook at slash Alter Guild. To listen to more episodes or to subscribe, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else fine podcasts are sold. And if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in next week for our next episode. And in the meantime, go in peace, listen, love, serve, and alter.